Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me, as always, is Aaron Cameron, your co-host today. Our guest is Colin Johnson. He is President, Research Valuation and Advisory Canada at Altus. And we're going to have a, I guess, a multifaceted conversation today. There's a couple of really interesting things to talk about with Colin. We're going to talk about his visibility on the entire national Canadian market from Altus. We'd be hard-pressed to think of more than a handful of groups in the country that would be going through the volume of data that Colin sees every year. In conjunction with that, we're going to talk about his data strategy. What's the next level of using that data to... uh, enhance yield, enhance performance, enhance all those things that uh, real estate professionals spend all day seeking. And then we're going to end off on a talk about retail. Of course, we're at a bit of an inflection point and it's worth date stamping where we are today. It is, of course, July 12th. Vaccines are out there. The world's opening up and improving. So what does retail look like coming out the other side of this pandemic? So sorry, long-winded intro, but Colin, welcome. Thanks a lot, Adam and Aaron. Nice to be here. So before we jump into all of the fascinating topics I've already highlighted. We're going to start with the Collins background. So Colin, can you just run us through wherever you see fit for your personal story, but how you started in real estate and got to uh, where you are today? Sure. I've been with Altus and its predecessor companies. I'm celebrating 30 years this past June, but I feel like I've worked for a variety of organizations because we were a small sort of partnership working on Toronto valuations. I was an appraiser. Then we decided maybe we could do work nationally with like-minded people. So we put together a valuation, sort of a network of appraisal shops in the late 90s, mainly to do work for pension funds and REITs who wanted a consistent approach across the country. And then 2005, we came together with Derbyshire and Yeoman, a property tax consulting group, and Hellier Cost Consulting, and then our valuation consulting. And that was the genesis for Altus. And our path... I would say changed a bit or was accelerated in 2011 when we bought Argus, which is the kind of de facto valuation software that your firm uses and a lot of people use, sort of a global standard. And then we, you know, we bought George Karras's firm, RealNet, Sandy McNair's Insight, and data and technology became an important part of where we were going. And really, we sort of looked at real estate, and I look at it today where the financial services were sort of 20 years ago. And it's going to be about being to be a modern real estate company, which your firm is and other is. It's really about harnessing technology and data along with professional advice. And that's really the journey. And that's that's kept me interested and why I haven't really moved on from Altus. Because again, I think it's, it's it's given me a great professional and personal platform. So, I mean, I find that such an interesting story because Adam and I, talk about data and, and prop tech technology and real estate quite a bit. And we're very slow. Us as a community, the Royal, we are very slow at adopting. When was it, do you think, self and, and the others at Altus had that realization that data, technology, and combining it with advisory services is the future? Well, to tell you the truth, Aaron, in 2005, we thought the three firms together, like that's going to be strong. And we got so much data. But then we realized it was all on PDFs or on pieces of paper on somebody's desk. And then it was, you have to invest in the infrastructure. So that means really spending money. And that's what we decided to do. And I would say it was after 2011, after we got Argus, then we really, really doubled down. 
And I would say that um, we got a new CEO in 2012, Bob Curto, who came from SAP, knew about technology very much. And then we started to add more people to the organization. And now Bob was there and did a wonderful job steering us through. And we made a bunch of acquisitions, I think, as both you guys know, between 2005 and I think 2020, I think we made over 40 acquisitions. And that was a lot. And a lot of it was around the data and technology business. Now, I'm not saying all of them were home runs, but it certainly got us to, to, where we are, to where we are now. But that was that. And we realized we need different kinds of people. And we had a lot of real estate people and a lot of property tax experts and great quantity surveyors and cost surveyors. But we needed, we needed people who could work with data. And so now, you know, we look to hire data scientists and, uh, uh, you know, econometricians, et cetera. And so that's, that's, it's just a different type of people that they say it's skills in our toolbox, right? But I think that would be the, Argus was the genesis. And then from then forward, it's been, I guess, the last decade building that out. And we've got a, a new CEO as of September, Mike Gordon, who comes from FICO and Call Credit. He is really advancing this idea of technology and data going forward on a global footprint. Are you a real estate company or a technology company? That's a great question. I'm not going to dodge it. I was actually just presenting to a bunch of kids from Tel Aviv, well, not kids, students from Tel Aviv University. And they said, if you were traded in Israel, you'd be a tech company. And I would say that parts of our business absolutely do trade on that multiple right? We're some of the parts business right now where the professional services trade on a certain multiple and the more technology side of our business trades on a bigger one. So we would naturally think that we are moving towards a technology-enabled professional services company. <laughs> I like it. Okay, good answer. And so you'd mentioned 2005 as sort of the starting point and then 2011 with the acquisition of Argus is kind of in the, the platform. And I'm asking this only because, you know, in my role, I, I'm going through a lot of the same projects and, and strategy and vision execution. Are you where you thought you would be 10 years later or like, have you achieved the vision and how long is it going to take? It seems to take 10 times as long as you think yeah. it's going to take, right? So you, what does that feel like and where are you right now? You feel like we're not going fast enough. We feel we had maybe a, a few years head start on people, but you never know who's working on something in their basement or, and there's some great startups. The proliferation of prop tech companies, I mean, you could spend all day talking to potential partners or acquisition targets, right? And look at the shiny ball and that go down a bunch of rabbit holes. But we do spend a lot of time taking a look at that sort of stuff. We're not going fast enough. We want to go faster. But I think every company could say that. And, you know, we just, if you're talking about the vision, so, so you know, Mike Gordon comes from, you know, FICO Call Credit. He's like, couldn't we have a, a score on all our assets? Couldn't we even have an Alta score on an investment, right? From our valuation standpoint to a costing standpoint, from a property tax, let's put an ESG rating in there. Let's have like a FICO score. Let's have an Alta score. That's um, pretty aspirational, but pretty cool. We'd love to have that. I'm sure you guys would be happy to underwrite on it. And we just- Who needs, who needs cap rates? We just lend on the <laughs> Alta score. <laughs> and then, um, and we just bought, I was just mentioned to you guys before the call that um, we bought a company called Stratodam just recently. And that is a demographics company, lots of information, helps power some models. And they've done a lot in the US in the multifamily sector. So you can drill down very much as to everyone knows multifamily is a great asset class, but where should you really go? What part of Calgary should you be looking at? The Beltline somewhere else? What part of Vancouver? You know, Surrey better than... So apart from intuitive stuff, there's some strong demographics there. And I think every company is again, looking for 
to maximize alpha and manage beta, right? So beta is the risk and alpha is the overperformance. And I think with, with statistics, you can help do that. So that's just something else. And then the month before, I bought a company called Finance Active, which is an adjacency in the debt space. So we, we think there's something interesting there as well. So again, you just continue to evolve. And, but you have to you have to integrate these companies. And trust me, there is a plan, Adam and Aaron. There is a plan. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the best laid plans. So we are at an interesting point in real estate. We've got companies like yours just trying to push the boundaries of, as you said, you know, maximizing alpha. But then we also have companies that, I'm not going to name names, but I'm sure we could all think of a company, you know, a large company we know, where they're still living in a you know PDF Excel world, lots of data, but all siloed into 600 computer terminals with zero sharing in between small players in the industry. There's very large players. Again, we're not going to say anything out loud, but everybody can picture one, I'm sure, in their head. So when we've got companies like yours that are, are rolling out or on the edge of looking at something that will truly enhance performance and coexisting in a world with companies that uh, have not built the infrastructure for this high-speed life that we're hopefully going to be on soon, will there be a two-tier market? Will you see the, the companies that adopt eating up the ones that don't? Like, what do, you, what do you envision from an investment standpoint over the next couple of years as it relates to uh, data? I think what you're going to create is that sort of FOMO, the fear of missing out. And so you'll see we've got People, whether they're life codes, whether they're REITs, whether they're large pension funds, et cetera, that have adopted, that have said, yeah, you know, I, I'm going to go I'm go to Argus in the cloud. I'll just use that as an example. Let's, let's, let's be clear that cloud is the place because then you can share, you can collaborate. Everybody's got data, data silo problems. Even in Altus, we have data silo problems. But I definitely think we are going to have this sharing of information. I will tell you, there's been an evolution. A few years ago, I had clients, ooh, I don't know if I want to share too much, but it's a give-get. If you can get more information to help you manage your portfolio, to help you risk mitigate better and maximize returns, then at some point, you've got a competitor who's doing it, an investor or a board member is going to say, hey, how come we're not investing in this? And so I, I think it's, everyone's going to go at different speed, without a doubt. But I, I, I'd like to think that um, everyone's looking to, to move a little bit faster in that regard. But you are right. There's definitely bifurcation. And there's some people that are perhaps more believers in it and more forward thinking than others. But um, I definitely think our industry, definitely as it's become more institutionalized, is looking at how they maximize the data they have and also the, the third-party data that's out there and how they commingle it. As we've talked off the top, we're going to get into a sort of a deeper dive on retail and the implications of COVID and what it looks like as we kind of skate out of, of the pandemic here in July of 2021. So last question, Colin, before we move on, and I think we've kind of danced around it, but I'll just I'll kind of give you the opportunity. What is the vision? Like, what does the end state look like as it relates to your data strategy and the services that you can provide to clients? Yeah, the strategy is pretty simple. Follow our clients around the world. We're a global company. I think over 60% of our revenues now are outside Canada. We were a purely Canadian company when we, when we launched in 2005. Now we're a lot more global. And it's really, we all know Canada is 3% of the investable sort of universe for institutional real estate. But the Canadian companies play a, a disproportionately large role on the world stage, whether it's CPPIB investing in Australia, whether it's Brookfield building office buildings in London, et cetera. And so our job is just to be able to help service clients 
globally in that regard. And that's helping them with valuation, with cost consulting, with, with property tax and technology and data. That's really the vision to tell you the truth, Aaron. Yeah. And having that data available in real time, help them make decision making. Oh. That's obviously the, the end goal is that you can say, well, yesterday this occurred. And so here you've got it at your fingertips today. Real time data is so important. And um, I know people, and I'll just say this thing, CMHC is a great organization, but we know their stats come out annually, right? And so we're actually building, launching a product where we're going to do some real time on some, some multi-res data. We're running a proof of concept right now in Calgary. Our clients are supplying us with data through APIs, and we're, and we're going to develop that product. So again, it's just about enhancing the information. And like you said, how can you make decisions in real time if you're dealing with not real-time data. Well, call me after this, Colin, because we can chat about that when you <laughs> launch that product. Okay. <laughs> Happy to. So I, th- I think uh, we can get into our main topic tonight, which is retail in Canada. I mean, it is one of those asset classes that's gotten you know, big coverage in the news. I mean, it's funny, if you're, if you're not a real estate person and all you're trying to do is learn about real estate from the headlines, you probably know a level of office because everybody's talking about return to work and you know about retail because there's a lot of discussion, of course, about closing businesses. The most visible ones being restaurants. They're a fragile part of retail. They're not meant to withstand this kind of, these kinds of downturns. There's been a lot of closings. Everybody has their favorite restaurants. So it's a little bit of emotional play as well when you hear about a pizza joint that's been around for 50 years is now gone. But what's not covered in you know, the media largely is the rest of retail is not getting a lot of coverage. And then, of course, you're not really seeing too much in apartments or industrial because it's just not as visible to your average uh, layperson. But we want to do a deep dive into retail. So I guess the first question would be is, you know, how deep or not deep you know, was the damage to retail during COVID? Well, it's always good to start with some stats. So let's go with this. In 2020, the 25 largest retail chains that announced closures in Canada, that represented 2,026 stores. So that's closing in 2020. That's over three times more than the store closures in 2019. That's a headline number. And I think what's interesting is it's not just fashion. I mean, sure, we all know about, and I've got fond memories because I'm older than you guys of going to Le Chateau for my prom outfits and stuff like that, you know, but we all have retailers we love. So let's look at fashion. So you've got Le Chateau, you've got Additionnel, you've got Ricky's, you've got all those shoes bench. So that's fashion. Then you can go to David's Tees and Starbucks. We all know those. Then you can go to Boucler and Stokes and Pier 1. We can continue to go down. So to, to say it was just fashion or just service, and I haven't, I haven't mentioned the restaurants there. Let's, let's be clear. Restaurant trade was off dramatically, right? 50 to 60%. And so lots of closures there. So the whole industry was impacted without a doubt. Adam, in answer to your question. Now, I think we would know that there were different rules for different types of retail. So if you were an essential retailer and you, uh, you, know, you were a grocery anchored and you had a pharmacy in there and you had an Ontario and an LCBO, those fared pretty well. And they fared pretty well from a, a rental collection standpoint during this time, from an occupancy standpoint, far better than, than in closed centers. And we do... Um, we track, we have a quarterly investment trend survey. And for a number of years, everybody wanted tier one regional malls. That was always the top one. That dropped off a few years ago. But for the first time in a decade, in November of 2020, the number one wanted asset class from the 100 and 
75 people, executives that we survey, was food anchored retail strips. And it was people realized they stood the test of time during this pandemic. Also, part of it was the arbitrage. Industrial, everyone was clambering over and multi-res and cap rates were going down so much that people were like, well, I'm going to chase a sub four cap rate multi-res apartment and name a city. And why am I going after a logistics building at sub four and a half, name a city? And so I think there was, I think we've seen a lot of investment in food anchored strips. And I think we'll expect, we can expect to see some further compression in cap rates for that sort of asset class. So the asset class has done, done pretty well during this whole time. And the people that own them have done well as, as well. The enclosed malls, much more different. And by the way, jump in anytime if you want to stop me. The enclosed mall is a much more different story. And that had to do with, even here, we're in stage two, like we got 25% capacity for people going into malls. And so how do you recover from that, et cetera? And, I, and certainly not quickly. Now, we all saw the lineups in Yorkville. We saw that we've seen the lineups in malls. My 14-year-old daughter lined up for Sephora. My 17-year-old son lined up outside Sport Check. And they were in big lineups because they wanted to get in. So that's so that's encouraging, but we're not going to really see full recovery until we've got a wide everybody's got herd immunity, things open up, then we can get a better idea. But I would say, and I'll stop, not all the malls fared the same. Naturally, the top malls, the top fashion malls, those did better. The more secondary tertiary ones. They, they struggled. And we can talk about that. From, you know, did they struggle from vacancy? Did they struggle from rent collection? The answer is yes. And also the destination properties, like Toronto Eaton Centre with over 40 million visitors a year and Pacific Centre in Vancouver, those are top tourist destinations in their respective cities. They rely on tourism and tourism just wasn't there. So those pedestrian traffic counts are down more than say a, a suburban shopping center like a Fairview Mall or um, a Metro Town in Vancouver, for example. So definitely fared different answers. And the provinces, based on how strict they were, um, they had different results as well. So I'll stop there and we can yeah. Well, I have, so I have two thoughts, Colin. Let me go one and then the other. So first, you listed a whole bunch of closures of companies that have experienced closures, and it wasn't obviously connected to a single product line or type of retail. But all of those, I mean, if you look at for a commonality, none of them had any sort of real online platform to begin with. I mean, you didn't mention Toys R Us. I think that was even before COVID, but there's another one, right? That really kind of had issues. And then you talk about enclosed malls. I mean, we kind of knew that there was an experience, we haven't, we'll get there perhaps, the experiential retail and those enclosed malls were kind of struggling anyway against the Sherways, the Eaton Centers. I mean, we're obviously Toronto-centric here, but the major destinations, Yorkville, where they just, they are already kind of built in this. You just went and walked around. You had nothing in particular to buy versus your smaller secondary or tertiary, not even just by location, but just quality where it wasn't quite an experience to go. You were going there for a reason. So that was happening pre-COVID. So how much of this is just an acceleration of the reality yeah. of what was the transformation of retail in the first place? Yeah, I... I agree. I think a lot of the, the trends just in real estate in general were accelerated by COVID, but I would say that retail for sure. Those that have got a good and solid omni-channel platform fared the best, and they will the fare, fare the best going forward. And I think it's interesting to see, part of people ask me as well, if I've lost tenants, who are the tenants that are, is there anybody expanding? And there are, but I think what's interesting is you've got some digitally native retailers like Allbirds, which is shoes, 
and Wayfair and Everlane, which is clothing, and Adore, which is ladies' lingerie, and Chubby Shorts and Draper James and Away Luggage. Those are traditionally online, but they are now looking for some bricks and mortar, right? And so that's going to be interesting. And why are they looking for it? To make their returns easier, right? Because returns cost these companies money, right? To operate a digital platform is not cheap, right? Returns, returns are free to you and me. It's not free to the company. And so I definitely think you're going to see those kind of brands. The question is, how much square footage are they going to take? But it's going to revitalize. I think it's re-energize certain malls, which is good. And then you do have, interestingly, some other traditional retailers that are in expansion mode in 2021, be it Joe Malone, L.L. Bean, even Prada, Bone and Biscuit. Anything to do with pets, as not surprisingly, is really, really good right now. There are some retailers that are expanding. The question is, are they, is there enough of them? And will they be able to absorb what we see is, you know, when you walk in a mall, you see some dark bays. And what you don't see as a consumer is there's some guys that they're not dark, but will they survive going forward, right? They're on rental relief. They're paying percent rent only. There's no motivation for the landlord to kick them out because what good does a dark bay do for you, right? That's going to be interesting, Aaron. Well, it's worth mentioning, of course, that retail does have the unique problem that industrial apartments and office don't, that having a neighboring unit vacant causes an issue for the existing retail tenants, where, of course, having a neighboring tenant being vacant is not really a big deal for existing tenants and the other three uh, asset types. So there, there is motivations, of course, to keep those units full. You touched on it just briefly, experiential real estate, or maybe it was Aaron that touched on it. It is, of course, you know, a newer concept. Well, we'll call it three, four years. It's become a real buzzword. Has there been any data that shows that the pivot to experiential real estate could be a savior for malls that are in the right locations to you know, deploy that strategy? Yeah, it's interesting. You can read lots, of, read lots of articles and people say, I'll go back to the mall, but it better be worth it. And so there better be some joy in the experience. And that joy typically revolves around an experience. So I think you're going to see more pop-up stores, more interesting concepts that are there that, that, that drive people. I know we, we looked at food halls, food halls as a big savior. I remember going to Center Eaton and that was a fabulous food hall. If any of you went to Manual Life Center and went to Eatery, that was great as well. I do think those concepts are going to come back. We are social animals, as we know. We like to congregate. We like to have a drink and eat. It's core to our DNA. It's just a question how is it going to come back in the same form and is it going to take a little bit more time? So there had been the belief that restaurants were the new anchors, right? Because department stores were the old anchors and that wasn't working particularly well. And that's going to take a little while to play out. But I definitely, to say that experiential retail is dead, I think is not accurate. I think it's just how quickly it comes back. And we have seen, you look to for green shoots in retail. and so. We've looked to, talking about pets, we look to the US and we look to the UK. And I'll just say we've seen some, some good numbers. Like there's a company called Placer.ai. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but if you look at it, what they track is foot traffic. And foot traffic is a good indicator, precursor to how sales are going to be, right? You have people walking around, just like you said, Aaron, even though we can stop and shop, we'd still walk around Yorkville because we were bored and we had nothing to do. But traffic has recovered pretty well in New York. And so they track it like for apparel stores, it's kind of back to 
88% of where it was, the recovery. Groceries are, are 101% pre-pandemic. Home improvements, 103 So actually, those are doing better than they were. And overall, they're comparing June 2019, and that's important, not last year, June 2019 numbers with June 2021. And the, the foot traffic that they had, 265 million versus 274. So that's just down a little bit. So those, those are good numbers. So I'd like to think we have a desire to get out there and walk around. And if you're walking around, that's going to lead to purchasing. Because let's face it, we all have a bunch of money because we haven't spent much over the last few years. And that's the one thing that is pretty interesting is, you know, if you look at anything, whether it's Stats Canada or the U.S. numbers, Canada household spending currently, you know, is running 14% above 2020 levels and 11% above pre-pandemic levels. So I think we've got money and we're looking to spend it. Yeah, and it's just at what pace does the comfort and the, I mean, I think there's still a lot of fear in a lot of people about just what it's like to be out there and be that close and congregate. But I think you're right. I, I do hope and believe it's going back also. As an anecdote, just because we're having on the conversation, you know, I've got a retail plaza, grocery anchored with the, with the shoppers. And there was an old Pier 1 that you mentioned that went down and was black or dark, recently replaced by a Dollarama. And then it, immediately adjacent to that was sort of an older sort of mom and pop clothing store, went dark or, or vacated, now recently replaced by a Cobb's Bread. And so you can actually feel this air, this retail strip is actually growing and adding quality tenants to it, right? So for, for sure. I, told my, I, t- I told my mother about the Cobb's bread and she's excited. She's going, when does it open up, right? Like it, so <laughs> I think that you're seeing this around, around the country. So it's just going to take on different, a different capacity. One of the other things I think it's important to talk about is a lot of retail, most retail has a ton of parking around it and a ton of excess land. I kind of jokingly, tongue in cheek, asked one of your colleagues, Ray Wong, a couple of months ago, because he was saying like a lot of the recent transactions are retail. And I was kind of saying, okay, well, that's interesting. Is that really more just land play? Like at what point does retail just become land depending on the purchaser? So I mean, what are your comments and thoughts about that? Yeah. So well, let's look at the U.S. first. There's like 200 malls there in the U.S. that have got CMBS financing and they're like B and C malls. And you would, you would probably know those are being underwritten right now at land value, right? Because there is the feeling that we talk about vacant anchors up here because we went through Sears and we went through Target. There's 750 vacant anchor stores in the U.S. Like that's a lot. So there's a lot of malls that are not viable. And so I'll transfer that now up to Canada. I think that some malls will have to be repurposed, right? And I think that their highest and best use is no longer that. If you've, if you've lost the Sears and you'd lost the, a Target, and you have a backfield there, and you've got a bunch of retailers on percent rent-only deals, do you really have a viable shopping center? And I think the answer is no. And so in some cases, we're doing a bunch of work, because I'm sure you are, with feasibility as to how do you convert, how do you rezone? And rezoning in Canada is not as easy as it is in the U.S., right? We're stricter up here, rightfully so. So it's not like every failed community mall or failing community mall can be a... uh, Amazon distribution center, or it can necessarily be a mixed use concept. But I think, I think we'll definitely see a lot more of that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of REITs in Canada, retail REITs, and, you know, that, and I think of the Rio Cans and the First Caps and the Columbia, you know, people who, who are sitting on some great sites with a lot of redevelopment potential. And I know they're looking at doing redevelopments and we're looking at the feasibility of that along with them. So I think it absolutely makes sense that we'll see more of that. And I, I just I know, think, yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to, to step on you there, Colin. One of the coolest repurposings I saw down in the U.S. in the last couple of months was a 750,000 square foot mall, so sizable, went totally dark down in the States. And the video game maker who uh, runs Fortnite bought it and transitioned it into a campus headquarters. I can only imagine you know, what the interior looks like there. If it's a 750,000 square foot video game operator doing an office, so that's a, a very cool conversion. I thought everybody's, skate, everybody's skateboarding around that place yeah. for sure. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I did the math at the time. I don't have it on hand because I didn't plan on talking about this, but if you looked at what they bought it for on a per square foot basis, I mean, it was very cheap office space. So there's you know a real economic reason for what they did there. I, I, I thought that was very cool. I mean, that's a great success story. There's a lot of stories that are probably not, don't have such a happy uh, ending, but related to some of the new ownership types showing up for retail, what are we seeing here in Canada? I mean, uh, sure. Obviously, there's and not just the not just the repositioning. Who's buying retail these days? Obviously, the list of sellers is long, but uh, who's buying? The list of sellers, certainly for enclosed, is long. You're you're right, Adam. I just looked at the stats for the first like four or five months. I think it was up till May, and half of the retail. So we did. Um, trying to remember, I think we did 1.7 billion dollars worth of retail transactions. Over half of it was open format sort of freestanding neighborhood strips or even freestanding stores. And the overwhelming purchasers of that were private, right? Small and large private. So there's good liquidity between five and sort of $15 million. And you've got private money stepping up for that. You don't have a lot of institutional money. As you pointed out, institutional money is looking to divest of some retail and repurposed into industrial and into multifamily. That's what they're trying to do. So most of the transactions that we're seeing right now are private in nature. And naturally, we haven't seen any um, foreign capital really hasn't been involved for a while because foreign capital can't come and visit and uh, actually touch and look at properties. So mostly private money. Yeah. Would you say that's short-sighted, Colin, that that they're sort of divesting a retail, just if it almost seems like a knee jerk, you know, yeah, of course, get rid of it. But it, real estate's a long game, right? Yeah, but we're a bit of a herd mentality, not just here, but everywhere. And it's guys are fighting over each other. You know, there'll be 10 bids on a logistics building. And like I said, a, a low four caps. There's always people with contrarian strategies. I know there's people who are thinking maybe I should start a, a suburban office fund because I believe that there's going to be, uh, you know, a sort of hub and spoke. So, I'm not going to say it's short-sighted. A lot of people did very well with retail and we all know the MSCI IPD returns. They like, had super returns for a decade. Retail is going to be challenged. Even I think decent retail with regards to rental growth. I just don't necessarily think you're going to get. It used to be in retail, if you're a big landlord, the 10-year lease would roll over and you'd clap your hands and you'd say, okay, well, you're going to go up 10 bucks in base rent for the first few years and then another 10. And that's not the case. It was a landlord's market for a number of years. And it was all about, look, your sales are so strong. Here's your grok ratio. We can justify this. And so I just think that's, that's a harder thing for, for landlords to do now. And I think all retailers are saying, look, for me to be successful, as you pointed out, Aaron, I need to have an omni-channel platform and that costs money. And I've got to invest in that website and free returns. So one of the few places I can go to reduce my cost of goods sold is to you, Mr. Landlord. <laughs> yeah. And so we got to talk rent. And so I think what's going to be interesting, and retail is going to take some time to play out, is are some of those rent rolls potentially going to be unwound a year from now, right? Once we're back to normal sort of vaccination and trading patterns, will retailers say, hey, you know what? I want to stay on percentage rent only. And the landlord is going to say, well, you can't do that. 
well, no, let's do it for the next two years. So that's going to be interesting. And that's going to take a while to play out. On the other hand, we could have revenge shopping. And the question is, how long is that going to be? Is it going to be revenge for two months? Is it going to be revenge till Christmas? What's it going to be? So yeah. take, it's going to take a while to play out. Everybody needs to refresh their pants. And so you got to go to the store for that, right, Colin? Yeah. Um, so Colin, in a world where you see retail, you know, shifting to, to shorter term leases, to percentage rent basis leases, which is, you know, would be, is already present in the market. But if you saw more and more of that, of, of sloughing off the, uh, some of that risk back onto the landlord, would that further accelerate some of the institutions looking to separate themselves from retail because they do not like unpredictable or uneven cash flows? I think that's fair to say for some of them. There's some that are confirmed we are in the shopping center business. It is a great business. Like, you know, the Yorkdales, the Toronto Eaton Centers, the pa- they're going to be great properties. Those that do over $1,000 per square foot, they're going to come back. And luxury has done very well during this recession as well, luxury. So, so I think they're going to work with the retailers in partnership. But naturally, they're not going to want percent rent only deals in, uh, in perpetuity. But I think flexibility around lease term and is going to be, is going to be interesting. I also think co-tenancy clauses are going to be an interesting thing going forward because co-tenancy was a big thing in a lot of leases. And when your anchor was, you know, had left, you got to pay less rent. And I just think that's going to look different going forward as well. But I think you'll see some people divesting, but I think they've already stated and announced they're going to divest some of those people. And I think other people are just, they're going to operate in a different manner and they're going to be very close with their, with their retailers. And you saw Simon taking a, a stake in some retailers, et cetera. And so you'll probably see some of that as well. Yeah, I think there are some people, and I think it was Blair Welch from Slate who kind of had this. And they're, they're I think, sort of renowned as being a bit contrarian. And so and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this was stale, I guess, about a year ago. And maybe they are selling their retail. But the logic was, no matter what, now I've got great asset. It's surrounded by neighborhoods. And I can convert this to a 70,000 square foot fulfillment center or micro distribution center or whatever it may be, that there's always going to be really good purpose or really good use for that dirt, given just it's surrounded by neighborhoods, right? Yep. I would say, I'd just say one thing, if we're talking, and maybe Ray Wong mentioned this, land sales have been really hot this year, right? Like land took a pause for a while. It is back with a vengeance. And now you've got multifamily builders and single family builders competing with industrial guys for land on the periphery of major urban markets because you want that last mile fulfillment. And so, yeah, if you've got a center, and as you pointed out, Aaron, there's lots of parking. These are sometimes 20 to 50 acre sites. They're not making any more of those. So I think there's definitely some inherent value there. And, it's that, and if you're looking forward into the future, and that was kind of my question about short-sightedness, is there's that last mile, if you truly believe that e-commerce is going to destroy retail, you can't do much better than a lot of these sites that are better situated for that five-minute delivery cycle that we all kind of are anticipating. We're almost out of time, Colin. So I've got one more question. I think Adam's got one more chambered as well. A reminder to the listeners that uh, Adam and I will kind of digest this conversation in the after show once we're done with Colin. I think we've done a pretty good job of digesting all of the, the, the circumstances surrounding retail. The only thing I can think of that I think is maybe interesting is you know we've really identified that the enclosed malls are probably the type of retail struggling the most just a result of, of just the times we're in. Are you seeing a, and I don't even know what this word is, I'm sure there's actually a name for it, but just a de-enclosation or they're turning these de- things from enclosed malls to being you know outdoor malls and kind of turning everything outwards. Expansive. Demalling yeah. is demalling. Thank you. Is, is tough, but I think you'll see what you might see is, and what we have seen is, let's knock down this box that's been vacant for quite a while. Let's take that density 
and let's use it with some pads. So let's put a couple, you know, a restaurant pad or a bank pad or something like that, right? I think that's what you'll see is rather than have that black box, let's take that density and move it to the periphery. So I think you might see that. And drive traffic, presumably. Yeah, and drive traffic. And there's one thing I would just say, I forgot to mention is, we talked about restaurants. If you saw Toronto Life, there was a great article on ghost kitchens. We'll go back out to eat, but I think we'll continue to order in. And I think ghost kitchens, particularly for service commercial places, are, are another great potential use. Something that I'm interested in and certainly seen some concepts that have done better and some maybe not so well. But certainly something to look for to see how that proliferation continues. I find that, it, and I know Adam's got the last question to go, but I've got a ghost kitchen near me. And it's high-end sort of restaurants that are downtown core, and they've only got the one restaurant. But now they're, they're accessible to somebody out me in the suburbs. Whereas before, my only access to that sort of high-quality food uh, would be going to the restaurant downtown. So I love that idea. I'd love to see more of that, Colin. Yep. So Colin, we got one more question for you, and it's a bit of a lighthearted one. Every holiday season, I go to 15 large parties thrown by you know, various people in the, in the marketplace. And by the last, to- the last party, I'm pretty worn out and tired from going to parties which is why I love the Altus party because it's the very first one of the year. It happens end of November. I am fresh faced and rested and looking to socialize. So I'm a big fan of it. So will Altus be having their Christmas party in person end of November this year? Ah, I just feel this question from George Pistolsky just the other week because he's like, you're the kind of unofficial kickoff to forum. You're always the Thursday before. What do you think? So Adam, I don't know if in good conscience we're going to be able to do it this year. So here's, here's what I'll say. You know, our, we don't serve a lot of food. We serve a lot of drinks and we pack as many people as we can in. That's kind of our uh, modus operandi. And it's a great event. We have a lot of fun. I'm just not sure we're going to have, whether it's going to be responsible to do it, whether we can do it. And a lot of people come in for the Toronto Real Estate Forum. They come in from out of town. And so yeah, I just don't know if that's going to be feasible. But what I did say to George is, if things rapidly happen with vaccines, we'll maybe have a smaller event. But rest assured, you two guys get invited, okay? But that's the only reason. That's the only reason he asked the question. Colin. He <laughs> wanted to make sure he was on that guest list. <laughs> yeah, not a not a problem. But no, it's it's great. We we missed having that party, and I'm glad I'm glad you guys enjoy it. So I'm probably not feeling very good about it this year, but um, I'm certainly think we're going to come back with a vengeance in 2022 when it comes to socializing. But um, I'm confident I'll be able to see you guys around somewhere for a drink in November. Awesome. I hold the same optimism that we're just going to rapidly escape from our uh, work from home life and the, the lockdown that we've been living in for whatever it is, 16, 17 months now. And that by November, you guys will be saying to yourselves, geez, I can't believe we didn't expect to be throwing this thing. Uh, and we're all, we're all pleasantly surprised that it feels so much like normal. Colin, we're out of time. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this with us. Very informative, like the numbers and the statistics. Retail is the, I think, the most uncertain, maybe with office, but I mean, just the the impact of COVID on retail is clearly unparalleled in our space. And so really appreciate your insights. Very, very interesting. Thanks again. Pleasure to be on with both of you, Aaron, Adam, be well, and uh, hopefully see you soon. Okay. Thanks, Colin. And up next is the after show. Those who have not had enough yet of Aaron and my voice, we will go through our thoughts on this show. So see you on the uh, see you on the other side of the ending music here. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. 
after show where it's just Aaron and I sharing our thoughts on what just happened. And that was, that was an interesting one. I, I always enjoy hearing Colin speak and, you know, for anybody that's not had a lot of exposure to the real estate forums, he's a regular participant and he's pretty visible in a lot of places. So he speaks very well because he's taking a whole world of data and makes it very, very relatable and understandable for those of us that are not, you know, spending all day steeped in, in graphs and data. So I was very glad to have him on. But a couple of interesting things came out of the conversation. One for me is that, you know, in certain sectors of retail, we're actually going to see some cap rate compression. I don't know if I if I saw that coming, but I thought the it, it makes sense when he, you know, kind of ran through it, but I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, I mean, we didn't really dive into it because there's so much to talk about, but I mean, it's got to just be the liquidity in the marketplace. You and I have had the we chatted about it a whole bunch recently. It's just so much capital chasing yield. And he kind of said, it. he's like, when you're you're looking at apartments and sub four caps and industrial, I mean, he said four and a half, but we've seen industrial in the sub threes. So yeah, like if you're not getting those yields, those asset classes, potentially turning to retail with some premium, I mean, you got to risk adjust it a little bit, but perhaps if you've got the right anchors and the right, the right structure, the right location, you can make it work. And so I'm not surprised. There's just so much money out there looking to get out and get used. Yeah, no, hundred percent. That is part of it. Just wall of capital is going <laughs> to solve a lot of problems in any asset class. Demalling. I know you know the concept. Was was that word new to you, or were you just no, no? To find I it? just forgot what it was called. Yeah, okay. no, no, no. We I mean, we've got a couple. I think of loans that we're working on, or have you know out that are on for clients that are doing some demalling. I just couldn't remember what the term was, but it is a cool term, and it does happen. Like, and we're seeing it, right? So. But to his point, it's expensive, right? And I think that's what we've come across too, is that often the, the budget doesn't make sense. And then particularly, you know, as he noted, with a really uncertain future of revenue for retail assets, like where are rents going to land, right? Like it is not a landlord market. Clearly it's a tenant's market. And so upon renewal, there's probably a bunch of leverage to get rents down, to renegotiate step-ups, add co-tenancy clauses, add a bunch of stuff that, Typically, we've not seen prevalent in the retail space as a result of just you know where the market was. So it's going to be very, very interesting just to see where these things play themselves out. What is market retail rents uh, in 12, 18, 24 months from now? Uh, clearly, nobody knows, but it probably can't go up. That would be my guess. Well, I was thinking that when we were talking about what type of retail users are expanding their presence. And it sounds like quite a bit of people that are successful in online are now looking for retail, but maybe it's because they expect that retail costs of distribution will get lower due to rent. Maybe because more viable now to, to be uh, be omni-channel. But I was thinking about that when we were discussing who's expanding. If you are in a position to expand, probably a great time to do it because you could pick up some great locations at rents that are not going to be too cumbersome. So that is that is the kind of the big yeah. question mark. Be multiple, but will they be charging the same rent? Well, I call it hit mention it. He's like fair, but you know, for those historically bricks and mortar retailers that have now shut down many of their operations or all their operations, those inverted sort of e-commerce retailers that are moving into bricks and mortar, you know, they might have five strategically located stores, not forty of the bricks and mortar operator that's now gone completely bankrupt. So it's not going to fill the void. That's for sure. But yeah. Clearly, it helps, right? At least there's somebody coming in that that was not a historic user of space in that in retail. But to what extent? And then he talked about pop-up stores. You know, we've seen it. We've had this conversation before. Walmart and IKEA and Costco doing these sort of like small distribution pop-ups and or pickup locations. And so there's other users. It's it's evolving. I guess that's the point. 
It's just, it's, it's uncertain, but it's evolving. It's not going to be as prevalent. Like he didn't throw the numbers out about like total retail per square foot per capita or anything like that. But it's, that number has got to be going down no matter what way you, you splice it. Right. Yeah. Or reinvent or rejig or reposition or, or any of that. It's, it's, you're, you're fighting a bit of a losing battle. Well, it's, it's I mean, got to go into industrial. That would be my instinct, right? If like, that space somehow, maybe it's a, maybe it's mixed use sort of retail distribution center, retail fulfillment center, retail micro last mile. I don't know. Right. But it's interesting. Very interesting. That's why we like real estate. That's why people listen to the podcast. <laughs> Always changing. Yeah. It would, uh, it would get boring if you could just plug it into a formula, right? <laughs> exactly. When, topic we got into briefly, maybe we should expand on a little bit, is the issue of dark windows in retail. And a lot of retail leases do have go dark clauses. Obviously, retail benefits from being surrounded by other retailers drawing traffic to their vicinity. If uh, you have a mall that is a third empty, you're going to have much less foot traffic going through. So that is the rationale behind dark windows being damaging to the neighbors. Whereas an office user probably does not particularly care if the floor above them is occupied or not. Aaron, you know, I know in your credit role, you've reviewed just a ton of leases. You know, go dark clauses are present in uh, in a lot of these, and they probably were just a bit of a forgotten clause for for most of these users. But you know, there's probably a lot of landlords facing that now, where they are going to have issues with existing tenants because they put a go dark clause into their lease. Yeah, and fortunately, I mean, clearly that's a, a favorable. A condition for the tenant. But I think fortunately, often landlords would resist that or would only allow it for the big box stores, the Walmarts. I think they're infamous for, for including that in most of their leases. I think grocery stores had the leverage to negotiate that in. And like Colin said, but during the pandemic, those stores have actually done pretty well, right? So you'd like to believe, right? My, my instinct is that there are not a ton of sort of small flower shops that have been able to get the go dark closet because the reality is even if they got it in there's no point for them to go dark and continue to pay their rent they're just stopping payment and so that's a different that's a different <laughs> scenario than wanting to shut down operation but continue to pay rents and so I, I hope that we're not seeing a ton of that and in the enclosed malls that's probably a little bit more prevalent because probably there was a little bit more eagerness on the landlords to get tenants in to keep the building to keep the 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 prep the presence of retailers, like just to keep the, the vibrancy going. I mean, we've all now walked around indoor malls where, you know, it's 70% vacant and it's just a ghost town, right? Like it's just nothing there. And you can just feel that it, this place is you know, not long for redevelopment. So yeah, you're right. It's got to be changed. My instinct, like we've been back to that, those inside malls are the, the enclosed malls. I think very, very few, particularly the older legacy ones, with the lower ceilings and just maybe the big circle or they're not even fully circular. It's just like an S or a T or something. Really hard to keep those things afloat. I just that I can't imagine. I can't imagine them continuing to exist in the long run. I, I was walking around uh, a power center in stage one of our opening, and so I went into the mall. I was getting uh, some sunglasses fixed, and the guy goes, "That's ah, going to be about fifteen minutes. Why don't you just uh, walk around during that time?" So I walked around and. All the all this all the stores are closed. There's nothing there. It was uh, anyway. I was literally looking to spend money. It's a perfect example of foot traffic not being capitalized for that reason. So I get back and said to this to the uh, to the to the sunglass guy that oh, there's nothing really here to buy. And he goes, well, you could always buy another pair of sunglasses if you want. So I thought that was a pretty uh, pretty good response. <laughs> he meant walk around in his store, not leave the store. And <laughs> yeah. Walk around on it. Yeah. 
There's one other thing I was thinking while we were discussing your optimism about us being open because the rest of the world's way ahead of us. I got, I thought it's got to be nice for a data guy like Colin. If you're trying to comment on the Canadian market about what will happen when everything opens and the whole rest of the world's way ahead of us opening, he's got so many data points to pull on from other countries. He mentioned the U S and UK repeatedly during the conversations. We'll just look to them because they're similar to us. So it's got to be great for somebody who's in the business of prognostication in, a, in really tumultuous times to have so many real life examples to point at. Like, well, that's a similar market. And that's what happened to them. It's got to really help refine, you know, his predictions. Well, and even just to give us comfort socially, just as a community outside of real estate, even just looking at, I mean, we just, I'm assuming everybody watched the, you know, the Euro Cup final in England. Wembley Stadium was packed to the brim with people. And then there's a Formula One race at Silverstone this weekend. They're anticipating 120,000 people at the race on Sunday. So it's, I mean, the UK is widely, I think it's fully open. I don't think they have any restrictions. However, if you look at their COVID numbers, they're going back up. So maybe we'll learn, okay, wait a minute. <laughs> that was too fast, right? <laughs> like that was a little bit aggressive. Let's try to learn from their mistakes. So real estate or otherwise, I think we're probably in a good position to be a little bit behind the pack. But you look at US, most of the US is fully open and they're not seeing a resurgence in COVID cases. So who knows? I mean, that's time will tell. But anyway, I think that's a wrap. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for uh, spending the time with us. Looking forward to the next one. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.